So I don't know if you're old enough to remember when seat belts weren't a thing. You remember when you used to, I used to sleep on the back shelf of the car. I'm old enough to remember when seat belts weren't a thing. That's changed. They are a thing now. And I know they can be annoying. But I have to be honest, I've never really understood people who don't wear seatbelts. Because statistically, you know, there's always that one person who says, I don't wear my seatbelt because I know somebody who died because they had their seatbelt on. But they ignore the 100 million people that were saved because they had their seatbelt on. There was a New Zealander, his name was Ivan Segerden, who didn't want to do seatbelts. And so he took it to the next level. Uh, just refused. And so over 35 years, he ended up being fined, uh, in 32 years, in five years, he ended up being fined 32 times for not wearing his seatbelt. And so he decided he's going to make a plan, and he made a fake seatbelt that he clipped to his seatbelt and would just hang it over his shoulder. He didn't get fined. But on the 22nd of July, 2007, Mr. Segerden died from multiple injuries in what was described as a low-impact head-on collision. See, Mr. Segerden's fake seatbelt saved him from fines, but it couldn't save his life. His fake seatbelt saved him from fines, but it couldn't save his life. Fake can be fatal. Over the next two weeks, we're going to be looking at the book of Jude. Every now and again as a church, we, 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 we choose a book and then we preach kind of what that book tells us. And the book of Jude comes right at the end of the Bible. It's a tiny little book between the three letters of John and Revelation. And it is a book that is focused on fake preachers, on, on people who preach a gospel that is other than the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. And it only has one chapter. And because I'm the boss, I get to do most of it. Next week's genre gets to do like the last two verses of the whole book. And so I'd like us to read together from the book of Jude. Jude, a servant of Christ, Jesus Christ, and a brother of James, to those who have been called, who are loved in God, the Father, and kept for Jesus Christ. Mercy, peace, and love be yours in abundance. Dear friends, although I'm very eager to write to you about the salvation we share, I felt compelled to write and urge you to contend for the faith that was once for all entrusted to God's holy people. For certain individuals whose condemnation was written about long ago have secretly slipped in among you. They are ungodly people who pervert the grace of God into a license for immorality and deny Jesus Christ, our only sovereign and Lord. Though you already know all this, I want to remind you that the Lord at one time delivered his people out of Egypt, but later destroyed those who did not believe. And the angels who did not keep their positions of authority but abandoned their proper dwelling these he has kept in darkness, bound with everlasting change for judgment on the great day. 
In a similar way, Sodom and Gomorrah and surrounding town gave themselves up to sexual immorality and perversion. They serve as an example of those who suffer the punishment of eternal fire. In the very same way, on the strength of their dreams, these ungodly people pollute their own bodies, reject authority, and heap abuse on celestial beings. But even the archangel Michael, when he was disputing with the devil about the body of Moses, did not himself dare to condemn him for slander, but said, the Lord rebuke you. Yet these people slander whatever they do not understand, and the very things they do not understand by instinct, as irrational animals do, will destroy them. Woe to them! They have taken the way of Cain. They have rushed for profit into Balaam's error. They have been destroyed in Korah's rebellion. These people are blemishes at your love feasts, eating with you without the slightest qualm. Shepherd who feed only themselves. They are clouds without rain, blown along by the wind, autumn trees without fruit and uprooted, twice dead. They are wild waves of the sea, foaming up their shame. Wandering stars for whom black, blackest darkness has been reserved forever. Enoch, the seventh from Adam, prophesied about them. See, the Lord is coming with thousands upon thousands of his holy ones to judge everyone and to convict all of them of all the ungodly acts they have committed in their ungodliness. And of all the defiant words ungodly sinners have spoken against him. These people are grumblers and fault finders. They follow their own evil desires. They boast about themselves and flatter others for their own advantage. But, dear friends, remember what the apostle of our Lord Jesus Christ foretold. They said to you, in the last times there will be scoffers who will follow their own ungodly desires. These are the people who divide you, who follow mere natural instincts and do not have the spirit. But you, dear friends, by building yourselves up in your most holy faith and praying in the Holy Spirit, keep yourselves in God's love as you wait for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ to bring you to eternal life. Be merciful to those who doubt. Save others by snatching them from the fire. To others, show mercy mixed with fear, hating even the clothing stained by corrupted flesh. So far we read together in God's word. Lord, we pray that your word will this morning be a lamp to our feet and a light to our path. May we have ears to hear, minds to understand, and hearts to obey. In Jesus Christ we pray. Amen. So did, did some of that sound really confusing to you? Did some of that sound really strange? Don't worry, we'll unpack a little bit of the strangeness. The strangeness isn't the main point of what's going on here, but we will unpack a little bit of it. It's always great when you, when you look at a specific kind of book to kind of unpack a little bit of, about what's going on here. And um, one of the first things we must note is who wrote this book. So the who of Jude. He introduces himself like this, Jude, a servant of Jesus Christ and a brother of James. Now that's, uh, you know, most people who wrote the Bible are servants of Jesus Christ. And so that's obvious. And then he, he adds this little biographical detail, the brother of James. Now he could most probably have used a very different title, but I believe he chooses not to because he wants to make a 
personal and really important point. He could have said, Jude, the brother of Jesus, which, hey, would have been a fantastic name to drop. Let's face it. If you're going to walk into a crowd in those days and drop a name, especially a Christian crowd, Jesus is definitely the name to drop. I mean, I wasn't like his apostle. I was his brother. Okay, half brother, but brother. But he doesn't do that. Why? Because he wants to do something very specific. He he wants his readers to understand that what is important about him isn't that he's the half-brother of Jesus. What's important about him is he's a servant of the Lord Jesus. Like all of us. Because he wants to say something about false preachers later on and and how they operate and what they think about themselves as opposed to what they think about Jesus. And so he, he, he makes this very clear. Actually, his name properly, if you go and look in the New Testament and stuff, was Judas. Uh, Jesus had two actual disciples called Judas. It was the practice of the early church to contract the name Judas to Jude for obvious reasons. It's why none of you, when you're going through baby names, and it's a boy, will ever call your kid Judas because you will label that child terribly for the rest of your life, of their life. And so, so they contracted in the early church, they contracted the name Judas often down to Jude. And so here we have this person, the, the brother of Jesus, who becomes a follower of Jesus later on in life. In his early years, he thought his brother was mad. Um, if you read some of the Gospels, you'll discover that. But he becomes a follower of Jesus, but what he wants us to know by naming himself the way he does is what's important about the gospel isn't Judas, isn't Jude, it's Jesus Christ. And he wants his readers to know that right up front. What's important for us isn't how big our church is, where we stand in the community, or what we do as followers of Jesus. What's important about us is who we follow and why it's about Jesus. The second thing that we discover about this book is to whom it is written. So who wrote it? Jude. To whom it is written. And that's really important. That's why a whole lot of this book sounds weird to us. Because he's writing to a very specific audience. He's writing to Jews. Um, he's writing, obviously, to some early Jewish church people that had been Jews. And so he uses some some quotes that look to us like they should come out of the Bible, but actually don't. Um, they come out of other Jewish writings. Uh, the, the story about, about, about the archangel Michael disputing over the body of Moses comes from not the Old Testament, but from another book that Jews often used about Moses, the the story about Enoch that we listened to. Also, same thing, it's actually not the Old Testament or the Jewish scriptures, it's another book which was still really important for Jews, but didn't count as scripture. And he uses specific illustrations in specific ways because, again, he wants to highlight some of the issues with false preachers. So he uses that story about the archangel Michael disputing and because he wants to say something very specific about authority. 
And that story is about people usurping God's authority in the world. He uses a scriptural example, Balaam. Now, when you hear Balaam, if you've been in Sunday school, you've been around church, you know the story. Balaam is the guy whose donkey spoke to him, if you know that story well. But what's really important is he wants us to understand the character of Balaam. Balaam was a prophet for hire. Literally, that's what he did. God spoke to him, but often he would modify what God said for money. Sounds like some preachers, doesn't it? Hear what God says, but modify it for money. And so he he uses his illustrations because he's trying to get his audience to understand some of the issues that are going on about these false preachers that have come among them. And so he's writing to a group of Jews. But more importantly, he's writing to a group of followers of Jesus. Because he's he's writing something that is so incredibly important. And here's the why. Why is he writing this particular book in this particular way? He, He says right up front, he says, actually, I'd love to write to you about other stuff. I'd like to write to you about all the happy stuff. You know, all the good stuff. The gospel of Jesus, that's what I'd really like to write you about. Just how amazing our God is and how he blesses us and how he loves us. But I can't right now because there's a problem. There's this huge problem. There is a threat to the gospel. And so I'm writing you this letter. Perhaps he wrote other letters at other times that haven't been preserved for us. And the church, led by the Holy Spirit, didn't include them in scripture. But but this is the one that is preserved And this is the one that teaches us that when the church started, there were those within the church who who did things that, that damaged the gospel. And it's still a reality today. And Jude is saying, guys, this is an emergency. This is an emergency, and we have to sort it out. So if he's writing to say, guys, we've got to preserve the gospel, what did they understand the gospel to be? So this is what he understood. That's what all the early apostles, it wasn't the whole of scripture. Remember, these guys only had the Old Testament. eh? At this point, there was no New Testament. There were these letters floating around, but they still hadn't become scripture. That only happens a bit later. But they had this Old Testament. So he's not talking about, he's not talking about preserving scripture. What he's talking about is preserving the gospel. And for the early apostles, the gospel was this. It was the fact that Jesus Christ was the Messiah. That this man, Jesus, was God himself. And that he had come to earth to live and to die. And that he died for the forgiveness of our sins. And that through him, and only through him, we can be reconciled to God. And that through him, God was bringing not only eternal life, but righteousness and justice and liberation and peace and joy to the whole world. Not only something that's going to happen one day, but something that's going to begin to happen now. The gospel of Jesus Christ, that Jesus is the Messiah, that God himself came to earth, that he lived and died for the forgiveness of sins. And through him and only him, we can be reconciled to God. 
and we will, and he, and that he will return one day to rule over the earth. That is what they wanted above all else to preserve. The bottom line is Judy is saying that if we lose Jesus, we lose everything. If we don't get Jesus right, nothing else makes sense after that. If we don't get this part right, if we don't hold on to who Jesus is, everything else is pointless to the church. Because the church stops existing if Jesus isn't the Messiah. We are the body of Christ on earth. And if, and if, and if we're not, if Christ isn't preserved, then we have, we're a country club. It's important to the individuals. It's important to you and me. Paul said it. If, if Jesus didn't die for sin, then we are the most wretched of all. If there's no eternal life, if I'm wrong about the Messiah, I'm the, I'm the most, I'm the most wretched man in the world. And that, and that if we lose Jesus, it's not only us that lose, it's not only the church that loses, it is the world that loses. Because he came to save the world. And in fact, Jude points out, it's even the false teachers themselves that will lose. And and, and he paints this really scary portrait of, of what it looks like for those who deny God, who deny Jesus. It's all over that book. Go back and look at it. It's one chapter long. You can go read it. Those pictures of what it is going to look like for, for us and for others if Jesus is lost. So let's get to it then. I, you know, I, you know me well enough if you're part of this church that this is not the kind of topic I like to go to, uh, you know, but this is important. And so let's see what Jude says to us about what false teachers look like. Why is it so important to understand what they look like? Well, because the truth is somebody can be wrong about a theological point or something that the Bible says and still not be a false teacher. I get things wrong, wrong theologically. There is nobody who gets their theology perfectly right. And for the last 2,000 years, as long as the church has existed, there's been theological debates going back and forth. I'll give you a good example. Our church believes that, that all people, irrespective of gender, can serve equally in the church. Women can preach, women can be elders. Now, there are other churches who, who don't believe that. They believe something different to us. But that doesn't mean they preach another gospel or we preach another. There will always be differences of theology. And so you must get the difference between a preacher not getting a thing perfectly right and being a false teacher. The other problem is that false teachers often speak truth. They often speak truth. In fact, you can listen. I listen to some preachers that I hope my church never listens to. And I go, whoa, that's a good point, but boy, you are a false teacher, because all truth is God's truth. It doesn't matter who's saying it. If it's true, it comes from God. If it's false, it comes from the devil. And so it's important to know the difference between us not being theologically perfect, because none of us are, and actually being a false teacher. And so what does he say they look like? And so let's look at this passage. Um, if you look at it, verse 4 and 12, and if you've got your Bible in front of you, you can go back there and look. First of all, they look like us very often. That's what he says. He says, they've come up among you. They've secretly come in amongst you. 
It would be so convenient if they, like, had a sign going, false preacher, false preacher. Because then we'd know what they looked like, and we'd go, okay, we're okay. But the truth is, they look like us. They are part of us. And I hope not part of us here, but part of us, the body of Christ around the world. And so we must know that. It's why we as human beings often get away with sin, not just theological, but also physical. Abusers get away with abuse because they don't look like abusers. They look like normal people. False teachers get away with being false teachers because they look like us. So that's the first important thing to know, that they often just look like us. But then one of the characteristics that he mentions, and I'm not putting them in any order, so you can go back and look, is number one, uh, secondly, their words and deeds don't often line up. Often they will say one thing and, and mean or act in a different way. Guys, the internet has helped us here. It's one of the things the internet has done for us. Often you will hear somebody preach a message about a particular thing, perhaps morality, and then you will discover that they don't live out their moral teachings. You will hear people preach things about finances or this or that or or honoring the government or doing this or doing that, and then you'll see them acting in a very different way. Which is why it's important that, that local churches deal with people that are around them that aren't helping the gospel. Their words, Paul, Peter say, uh, Jude says in verse 4 and verse 12, often don't match up. Sorry, verse 4 and verse 15. Number three, they distort authority. That whole thing about the archangel Michael and the angels in heaven. What they do is they, 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 they're very clever with who's actually in charge here. I see it often with churches where the pastors or elders or particular groups in the church say, we are the authority. We are actually in charge. There is one authority in the church, and it is Jesus Christ, through his word. That's the authority. But so often we see preach, and, 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 and those who say, I'm right, and everybody else is wrong. Immediately my spirit goes, mm, mm, I'm not so sure. Because what they are doing, they are usurping authority, and and. And Jude says, guys, not even the archangel Michael can usurp God's authority. Nobody can. And so they begin to to use their authority. We see it all the time when pastors tell people that they must give their last little bit of money so that I can fly a jet. Or they tell people, if you let me pray doom on you. I will, you will be saved. What are they doing? They are usurping authority. God's authority, Jesus Christ's authority. And so they distort it. The scary thing is often it's very subtle. 
Often it's very subtle because it's about, look, this is what the Bible says and, and I'm telling you this is what the Bible says. It's one of the reasons I love our kind of church government that's congregational. It can be a pain. I'm telling you, congregational church government can be an absolute pain. Andy Lucas smiling at me. He knows because he was also a pastor. <laughs> but I'm so grateful for it. Because it, it means that, that a few people can't get all the power. The next thing that Jude says is that they are greedy. They are greedy. He just says it. He says they do this for money. They do this for money. Turn on your TV. Go to a channel. Any one of the God channels. And you will see this. One of the real conflicts we've had as we've prepared this message is genre and eyes. Do we name names? Do we name names? I'm not going to name names this morning. Genre may go there next week. But folks, we can see it. And, 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 and do you want to know what my rule of thumb is, honestly? If there's a person, a pastor of a church or a leader of a ministry who lives in a particular environment with a particular group of people, and their standard of living is over here, and his standard of living is over there, you've got a problem. You've got a problem. I think that a, a local church pastor, and even, even an evangelist on TV, should live at the standard of the people that he is, at the kind of average of the standard of the people he's serving. That's what I think it should be. And, and, and we see this greed all the time. I don't know how many of you have recently seen on TV, and this is the closest I'm going to get to naming a name, some preachers getting interviewed about the airplanes. And they talk about things like they won't fly in commercial jets because they're demons in the tubes. Or they need their jets because that's the only way they can get to all the places they need to do ministry. Do you see what they're doing there? They're doing two things. Number one, they're being greedy. And number two, they are usurping authority. I'm the only person who can preach the gospel properly over there. The Holy Spirit can't do with it. The locals can't do with it. I've got to be there to do it. It's garbage. It's called the prosperity gospel and it's not true. That idea that says God wants you to be healthy, wealthy, and wise. It is, okay, wise, yeah, healthy and wealthy. No. If we look at, God wants you to live a good life. God does want you to be healthy. God does provide all your needs, but you don't have to be rocket science to see the difference between those two things, folk. But they will manipulate us to tell us that it looks like something it doesn't look like. Jude also says they make stuff up. Now, he uses it slightly differently. He says they talk about dreams. They make stuff up. And if, if you listen to a preacher who says something that seems outlandish, and, and he says it's in the Bible, go and check. Please go and check, number one. And number two, if you do check and you find a verse that's backing what he says, check what the verse actually says, not what he says it says. Or she, to be fair. They make stuff up. Lastly, Jude says they divide people. They divide people. They love to come in amongst churches and go, uh, 
you know, that other pastor, <laughs> it's why I love the fact that we get a diversity of preaching from this pulpit. That actually, they, on, on some theological stuff in this church, we have differences of opinion amongst the preachers. Because it's great, because we're demonstrating unity. We're showing that we can be together. They divide people. Folks, they are here amongst us today. Where are they? They're on TV. They are pastors that are worshipped in their churches. They are prosperity gospel preachers. They are gospel, they are preachers who preach legalism. They are preachers who preach a gospel that excludes other people. And they exploit the fact that the Bible needs interpretation. It does. But they tell us all, I'm the one who knows. And so what do we do about this? How do we fight them? And, and this is where I'm going to end. Jean Ray gets to have two verses next week. Come back next week. Jean Ray's sermon is superb. But how do we fight them? Well, the first thing that Jude says is we fight them together. We fight them together. We're in a body. Repeatedly, Jude says, this gospel that we share. He talks about yourselves over and over again. Not yourself yourselves. And we do this as a community. It's why we gather. It's why we have life groups. It's why we talk to each other about what God is doing. So we do it together. Secondly, Jude says, we do it by remembering. By remembering, in other words, going back and seeing what God has done in the past and what God is doing in scripture. and what. So we need to know where we come from and where God's people have historically been. We need to remember, we need to spend time in God's word. In verse 21, Jude tells us we must fight them by remaining in God's love. By remaining in God's love. I don't know why some people try to teach us that God's love and God's truth compete with each other. It annoys me so much. Because it's not. It's the same God and love and truth are married to each other in God's kingdom. And so we must remain in God's love, a gospel that is preached that teaches us to hate anybody, anybody. Our friends, our brothers and sisters, or our enemies is a false gospel. Because God so loved the world, and Jesus taught that we must love everybody. Jude says we have to stay true by praying by connecting with the Holy Spirit, it is through the Holy Spirit and obedience to Him and following Him that we will remain true to who God is and what the gospel is. And then finally, he says we can remain true by getting out there and saving people. By getting out there and saving people. And it's really interesting how he gives these three different approaches he gives here to being those who reach out and save. Be merciful to those who doubt. Some people do doubt. And when somebody comes with doubts, you can't jump on them and say, you terrible person. We, I see it with false preachers all the time. They, they kind of make this idea that doubt is a sin. It's not. It's not. Dishonest doubt is a sin. Doubt that says, ah, ah. But, but we all struggle. There are all moments where we say, God, and, and so, so he says, be on the, reach out to people, but be merciful for, to those who doubt. Save others by snatching them from the fire. 
Sometimes we've got to go into scary places. Sometimes we just got to grab people and say, even if you don't like this, you're coming with me. I'm going to carry on praying for you. So sometimes we have to show mercy mixed with fear. Sometimes reaching out is a dangerous thing. But we have to do it because the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ isn't only about getting things right. It's about doing things right. It's about doing things the way God wants them to do. We don't have to spend our time trying to parse theology to find out if somebody's a false preacher or to, 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 to save ourselves from them. Jude is saying essentially that if you want to know, if you want to fight them, do the gospel right. If you want to fight them, follow Jesus in a close, personal, intimate relationship with yourself and the people around you, the church that you're in. Love people. Pray. Get the Holy Spirit with you. And then go out and do the gospel. And when you do the gospel, Jesus is glorified. God is lifted up. And the people around you will see those who think they're more important in the gospel of Jesus Christ. Why do we need to get this right? Because fake is fatal. Let's pray together. God, thank you for your goodness and for your gospel and for your mercy and your grace and your love. Lord, thank you that you, you long to protect your family. Lord, we, we know that there are many false teachers around us. Lord, as we, as we journey together, may we recognize them for who they are. Protect us from them. Help us to live out the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ passionately, with love and the power of your spirit and of prayer and of teaching and of learning. Thank you for your great gospel. Now will you stand as you receive